please stand for the reading of God's word. Luke 2, 41 to 52. Every year, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the festival according to the custom. After the festival was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. Thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for a day. They began looking for him then among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. After three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them, and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me, he asked. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he was saying to them. Then he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. This is the word of the Lord. Those guys back there turned it off, I think. Oh, I got a text. That was one of those beeps you heard a second ago. No, just kidding. Um, I want to open. Good morning. Um, I want to open with a quote. Being bold enough to show someone your unfettered and undecorated self means you have the stamina to withstand judgment. Just, just a little light thought to start things out. <laughs> Let's pray. Uh, Father in heaven, thank you that we can all come out on this last Sunday of the year in this mellow time. Thank you for that wonderful mellow worship set um, to get us ready to hear your word. And I just pray that you would help us to be unfettered um, in our approach to you, our abandonment to you, our devotion to you uh, as we hear your word and apply it this morning. Thank you for your mercy in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> Uh, okay, I find, those of you who know me um, may find it amusing, as I do, that of all the things, all the stories about Jesus that I could preach on, they chose him as an adolescent. So um, I think that's probably suiting, but anyway. <clears throat> so of all the, um, there are four gospel accounts, and of all the million, billion stories that could have been recorded about Jesus growing up, Luke chose to include this one. Okay, just for those of you who are keeping track, this story includes in it the first recorded words of Jesus, by the way. Um, not that he wasn't talking long before this, but the first recorded words. Now, when Luke was compiling the information to write his gospel, it's entirely possible that he interviewed Mary. And so he says to Mary, um, all right, give me some dirt. Get, give me a really good story about Jesus growing up. And I suspect that this is the one she told him. She may have told him a lot, but this is the one that seemed to register, and I think probably because of the point it makes, which I'm hoping I can lead you into a little bit later. It's a tiny snapshot into what the life of Jesus as a young person uh, must have been like, 
But it puts us in mind that Jesus had growth. He experienced growth, right? He could have been zapped to earth as a fully formed uh, adult, but he wasn't, right? Hebrews tells us that he went through every experience that we go through in order that he could be a high priest who uh, relates to us, right? But here's what's certain is that we don't know very much about what it was like for Mary and Joseph to be raising the Son of God. Okay. First slide. Taylor. Yeah, thank you. Okay. Um, Second slide. They give me the clicker, and this is what happens. There we go. Okay. Um, So a little bit about this story in the background. We already know that Mary and uh, Joseph were devout followers, God-fearing Jews. Um, If I, I would have started in 39, actually, that says, when Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord. This was their lifestyle. They were very devoted. That's why they were favored by God. That's why they were chosen by God to be his parents. Um, And part of the great tradition in the Hebrew was uh, three times a year, everyone from the entire country would travel up to Jerusalem, up because it's higher above sea level. It doesn't matter if you're going north or south, but they would go up for three festivals, um, the festival of uh, weeks, the festival of tabernacles, and the earliest one in the year, which is the festival of Passover, which, of course, you're all familiar with. Um, So... Jesus and his family, being a good God-fearing group, are heading down to the capital city uh, with lots of people. So this is like the pilgrimage to the Hajj, if you want to think about that as a contemporary parallel. So lots of folks going up to Jerusalem because that's where the temple was. That's where the presence of God was, was in Jerusalem. And people would gather, I'll show you a picture later, in this place to celebrate the feast. Nazareth, by Google, is 90 miles north of Jerusalem. Everybody was traveling on foot, more or less. Some might have had beasts, but let's assume Mary, Joseph, and family. And I say family because Jesus was 12, which means he probably had three or four younger siblings by this point, his half-brothers and sisters. Now, um, so it takes almost four days to travel 90 miles on foot, provided you can make 25 miles a day. But that's a pretty decent clip if anybody's ever tried to do that. The law only required men to attend the festivals, right? Um, But women could go if they chose to. So in this event, it's clear that Mary and Joseph discussed it, and she was going to go down with the whole family in tow uh, to the festival, which would be logical. Jesus is 12. Um, That means he had already uh, entered into a study of preparation Uh, You know, if you're a Jew, um, and about that age, you start to learn about the Torah, and you start to study it, and you hang around with your your dad and uh, elders of the church and different people to start to teach you the scriptures. Whoops, sorry about that. Paul, Taylor, whoever's ever back there, I probably just screwed that up. Um, uh, In order to, to prepare you for a big coming of age ritual, right, where you're initiated into manhood and you become a son of the law, right? You've heard the term, it's called a bar mitzvah. Right? And Jews today still do that. Right? And uh, that's what Jesus was essentially working up to. So he would have had his head in the books preparing for that. He'd been learning from Joseph and the others about the law, the prophets, and the great expectations the Jews had for the advent of the Messiah, the anointed one who would establish his kingdom and restore Jerusalem forever. Now I'm wondering if Jesus as a 12-year-old is sitting with those guys and he's reading this stuff and he's going... Wow, this is about me. 
and everything that is entailed in that. Um, now, I'll tell you, uh, he was learning it. We don't have any evidence that suggests that because Jesus existed before the dawn of time and, well, wrote the Bible, um, that he would have spontaneous knowledge of it as a 6, 8, 10, 12-year-old. So uh, I think he learned it, studied it, memorized it, just like everybody else does. Now, uh, granted, I think because of, uh, he may have had a slight advantage on his peers in retention. Uh, <laughs> thank you. Being untainted by original sin and being God. But I still think that it is consistent with our idea and our knowledge of Jesus, as the writer of Hebrews teaches us, Jesus learned obedience. He didn't become obedient. He learned what obedience feels like for us. Because Jesus was naturally obedient. He didn't do wrong things, right? But he had to learn what it means to have an authority over you and say, yes, sir, no, ma'am. Right? And to do that. So, it, so his learning the scriptures, I think, is consistent with that picture of him learning obedience. Okay, well, back to the travelogue. It takes at least three full days to travel down to Jerusalem. Once there, the festival unfolds like this. The first day is a Sabbath, which, of course, is a holy day. Nobody does any work, but they do sacrifice the Pesach, or the, the, the Passover lamb is sacrificed, and everybody celebrates that. Then the feast continues throughout the rest of the week. And I, I always have trouble picturing what a week-long feast would be like, but I'll just take their word for it. And then at the end, there's another solemn commemoration, another Sabbath, and then everybody goes home. For the sake of our um, narrative... I'm going to suggest that they stayed the full week and they take off the morning of the first day following the last day of the festival. Um, yeah, so they're out there on the road. They're traveling in a caravan, if I didn't mention that before. Any of you who've ever gone on a long summer trip in a wood-sided station wagon with other families in the neighborhood, you go in caravan, right? And you'll, you'll stop at the same Howard Johnson's and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, similar with these folks coming down from, from Nazareth to Jerusalem. And all those days, they travel by day. They camp at night because it's not safe to travel the roads at night. So the... Um, on their way back, oh, incidentally, a little fun fact, the women would often travel separate from the men. The women would be at the back of the pack, kind of where there's more safety there, and the children would typically be with them, and the men would be out front leading the, the general procession. Um, because Jesus is 12, and he has started on his transition into manhood, he could have really chosen to hang back with the mom and the, and the kids, or to be up with the men, kind of starting to walk in that passage. I'm only telling you this to, to show you that it's entirely plausible that dad thought he was with mom and mom thought he was with dad, okay? So they go through the whole day carrying on without any particular um, uh, trouble about that. You know, maybe he's hanging with his cousin John or somebody, whatever. He's okay. Um, and plus, he'd never given them any trouble before, so it's reasonable that, uh, you know, he's, he's okay. Well, then they, then they camp, and they look at each other, and they realize he's not there. And they say, okay, okay, we, right, he's with somebody, he's with so-and-so. They start working their way through the camp. They go through the whole camp. That panic is growing. It's starting to set in. And finally, he's not there. Right? And the flood of emotions they must have felt at that point. Guilt for having lost track of them. Frustration at the trouble and expense 
of needing to turn back to retrieve them, fear of what kind of terrible thing might have happened to him or might happen to him overnight because they weren't going back overnight to Jerusalem. Um, one imagines a sleepless night for Mary and Joseph, each struggling not to fault the other for dereliction of parental duties. <laughs> Whose turn was it to watch the Son of God? Now, at the risk of sounding like a Monday morning quarterback, <clears throat> the narrative does not tell us that faced with this loss of their son and their distress over, we got to get this kid back, uh, they did not circle the wagons, fire up a prayer chain, and seek God's direction for where he might be. They didn't even ask God to protect him until they found him, right? Now, they might have, but the story doesn't record that for us. Just saying, right? Uh, it's easy to ask a lot from Mary and Joseph, being how their story started. But you got to remember that while favored by God, and this is an important point, they were just ordinary, humble, fallible human beings like us. Okay, so anyway, early the following morning, uh, they set out to retrace their steps back to Jerusalem, another bone-wearying 25-mile hike. Uh, and then they have to find accommodations because it's evening again. So it just it's compounding itself, this frustration, this need to make it right and get him back into the fold. But early the next day, they start searching the city and they start in kind of, Jerusalem is like a big hill and the temple's up on the top. So they're going to the markets. They're going to the places where kids might hang out. They're searching and searching. They work their way up closer and closer and they finally get to the temple uh, mound itself and they find Jesus. Whoops. Okay, so this is a picture of the temple. And you can see when he talks about the temple courts, there's that tall thing in the middle is the Holy of Holies and the Ark of the Covenant. And other stuff would have been there. The high priest only answers that once a year, not without blood. Those of you who know Hebrews. Um, then there's a little court in front of that, a bigger court in front of that, a really big court outside of that, and a massive court outside of that. They all have names. I'm not going to bore you with what they are. But after the festival and people started to leave town, the teachers and the Sanhedrin and stuff will go and hang in one of those colonnades. You see that? That ring the courtyards there? Because they were sort of weather protected. Uh, Passover happens in spring. It's fairly pleasant uh, in Jerusalem. But these guys would come out of their chambers, as it were, and kind of sit. Uh, and then they would teach the people and people could engage with them. And I have a little visual illustration of this for you. So where's, where's Luke? Luke, come on up here. And where's Sean? You come on up here. And where's David hiding? Dave Gunlock, are you hiding? There he is. Okay. So I want you guys to stand over here. Look how you doing, man. All right. Brothers and sisters, this is a real live 12 year old. <laughs> this is half the elder board of your church. You have to imagine these groups getting together seamlessly. And Sean here might ask Luke the question, so in the prophet Isaiah, when he's talking about this, is he talking about himself or another? To which the 12-year-old responds, interesting question, Elder Sheward. Um, when Isaiah prophesies the birth of the Messiah, he sounds angry to me. What do you make of that? That's the kind of dialogue you have to imagine these guys having, right, in that situation. Kind of unusual, not what you would expect. Anyway, gentlemen, thank you so much. 
I had the great fortune of choosing the author of the gospel to come up here and represent Jesus. Thank you, Luke. I have to imagine that perhaps Jesus had been to the festival before. It said his family went up every year. Maybe they went without the, the children. But then again, this time he's 12. He's coming of age. He's gaining awareness. He is gaining access to his own divine nature. I have to imagine he went to that festival. He saw the Passover lamb sacrificed. He saw the feasting. Feasting equals celebrating the presence of God with us. In the temple where the Shekinah glory of God dwelt when he was favoring them. And Jesus, at 12, took a breath and said, I'm home. These are my people. I get it. Scripture tells us he stayed behind in Jerusalem. doesn't say he got lost. doesn't say anything other than he stayed behind. He went to that space and he said, I could stay here forever. When they found Jesus, he was sitting among the elders, um, listening to them and answering them questions. I have to talk a little bit about this. In the rabbinic tradition, um, they had a method of learning that was kind of Socratic in method, is that the, the learned guys, the Sanhedrin and other guys, would come down and they'd start to open up a scripture to somebody. And they, like that little example I used with Luke and the elders, right? That's a, that real questions that I have about, that you might want to explore. So the rabbi would ask a question and then he would answer it. And then, in the best interchanges, there would be someone listening who asks him a question in response that further propels the conversation and the exploration of whatever truth they're turning over at that moment. Everybody listened, and many participated. It was just an accepted practice. It's stunning to think of a 12-year-old just blending into that conversation seamlessly. But it's more than just blending in, because you'll see how they react to him in a moment. Now, I have to say, as a point, um, this kind of questioning with a question, answering a question with a question, is a technique Jesus dearly loved because he uses it throughout the, all of the Gospels. If you take a quick check, Jesus recorded 135 questions that he asks through the four Gospels. And granted, some of them are simple like, where have you laid him? But others are considerably more complicated. And they're, in fact, going back at the person who's questioning him you might remember in his interview with Nicodemus, Nick at Night, as we like to, like to call that, um, he tries to explain the concept of born again to Nicodemus. And I just love this. Nicodemus is struggling with the mechanics of this. How can a man get back into his mother's womb? And, and, and Jesus says to him, you are Israel's teacher and you do not understand these things? Okay. Um, on another occasion, a lawyer questions him. I think he asks him, uh, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus responds to him, uh, this is on Luke 10, 25, if you want to see it. What is written in the law? How do you read it? And I'm certain that that's the nature of the questions Jesus was asking these elders when he sat in that colonnade. Now, um, I also wonder if Nicodemus was in the temple when Jesus was there as a 12-year-old, asking him questions. And you know what I really wonder? 
I wonder how many of those elders who talked to him as a 12-year-old in two decades were the ones condemning him to death for the truth he spoke. The passage uses strong words to describe people's reactions. They're going to come and tape this thing to my face in a minute. I know it. Um, In Luke 2.47, we're told, everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and answers. Amazed is to be shocked with wonder or surprise. So it's a strong word, right? It also tells us later, uh, oh, sorry, I I just wrote to myself, um, who is this kid? Uh, These guys might have been saying, I mean, they were grooving on the conversation, but they're thinking, child prodigy? Where's this guy from exactly? Um, And it's not like anyone recognized him. They couldn't say, oh, is this not the carpenter's son? Well, because he was from Nazareth, 90 miles away, right? Total stranger walks in. And so they're just, who is this kid? Was definitely the question. Now, when his parents showed up, and they kind of observe what's going on, it says they were astonished, a similar word, but it's like amazed to a power of 10, which means like uh, they're, they were like stunned out of their minds, basically, uh, to be filled with sudden and overpowering surprise or wonder, flabbergasted or gobsmacked are terms we might use today. I, that was for the Australians in, in the, uh, nobody, okay, happens. <laughs> In a minute, they're going to tell they're going to re, uh, they're going to tell Jesus what they've been suffering, and they use the word "we've been searching anxiously for you." That's also a super intense word, uh, and it says um, excruciating or acute distress. Uh, long and short, Mary and Joseph were, and understandably, I'm not picking on them anymore, freaking out and beside themselves when they finally find him. Okay, those are the strong words. Oops. Now, the heart of the matter. Thank you. That didn't take much. Um, (sighs) Any Marists in the room, forgive me for going here, but I think it's necessary. Mary makes it all about her. Right? Um, I read somewhere, some commentator said that a typical parent in this situation would find the kid and say, oh, I'm so relieved to find you. Now I'm going to strangle you right? Mary doesn't give the I'm relieved part. She just goes straight to, I'm going to strangle you. Um, Son, why have you treated us like this? Think about what she's saying. She's attributing causal factors to the choice Jesus made to stay behind. Uh, Can't you see or imagine the great pain you've caused us? How could you be so thoughtless and careful? You are so grounded when we get home. We've been freaking out for two days. Three days, she points out, your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. How would you, I I know we have a 12-year-old, we have a 13-year-old in here too. How would you expect a 12-year-old to respond to that? I tell you what, if that was my mom and that was me, I would have been shaken in my hosiery. (laughs) Here's his parents, tired, anxious, and probably more than a little frustrated with him. Um, they are quite reasonably expecting some kind of explanation, possibly even remorse or contrition. At least own up to it and your punishment will be less. That's not what they get. Jesus very calmly, and what is to become a signature strategy for him, answers their question with a question. Um, it's very 
difficult to not hear his response as smart-alecky on some level. And I have to tell you, and this is a take-home truth from this passage, if this were any other 12-year-old in history, he would be wrong. He would be in the wrong. This is the sovereign Lord, creator of the universe, and at times, he even gets to overrule mom and dad. Right? That's why he's not wrong. You have to ask yourself that question because any of the 12-year-olds in here would be in deep bandini. Um, Since Mary had already made it about Joseph and her, Jesus turns it right back around on them and he says, why were you searching for me? I'm going, come on, Jesus, you're missing the obvious real truth of the situation. They've gone to a ton of time and trouble to come retrieve you, and you challenge them? Seriously? You don't have permission to be here or even your parents' knowledge of your whereabouts. Okay, but question number two, and he makes a big point. Didn't you know I had to be, had to be in my father's house? Okay, now, um, some of your translations may say I had to be about my father's business. Others may say I had to be in my father's house. The message says, didn't you know I had to be here dealing with the things of my father? Okay, translators are struggling to put a word together with father to express the idea of what's going on. You know why? Because in the Greek, there is no additional word. It's emphatically in my father. Right? Um, Now, what is that like? Let's clarify this situation and establish paternity, shall we? Jesus, at this point, (laughs) sorry, it's like throwing a glass of cold water in his parents' face. In a way, not in a rebellious way. It's just the shock that they felt at that moment. When he says, didn't you know, it suggests that in his opinion, they should have known. For this, I take it to mean that he had certainly given them enough evidence throughout his childhood that he was clearly unique from his peers and siblings uh, from which they should have drawn the conclusion that he was, in fact, the son of God. But even without all of that, uh, Mary had been told clearly by the father who he was um, before he was even conceived. The angel had said to Mary, the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God, to which Mary responded, I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. Okay? Um, But here, in the context, it's 12 years on. What's happened? What's happened to that sensitivity? What's happened to that awareness of the truth of who she had? You know what? Uh, It's entirely possible Mary didn't really understand. Right? She heard the words, the people around her, understood. The senior people in the temple got it. She's 13, right? Um, It's understandable that she may have believed everything that was said to her without understanding it, okay? Another key point to think about later. Um, You know, if you look at Mary, this is really interesting. She was a human being. I mentioned that before. Even in the Magnificat, which is her song of praise to God after she learns that she's pregnant with the Son of God and goes to see her relative Elizabeth, look at the Magnificat. It never mentions the Anointed One. Mary, in that prayer, forgive me, makes it about herself. 
as a good student of the Hebrew, she was a good faithful Jew. There's lots of awesome praise to God and truth in the Magnificat. And there's two verses where she says, oh, how great it is that she has been favored by him and that she would be called blessed by all future generations. No mention of the child at all. Okay? But it's a wonderful prayer of praise to God for something she doesn't really get. It's the passionate cry of a naive 13-year-old. Pregnant with a burden. But she's human. Um, Later, it says that after they took him to the temple for his circumcision, Simeon, the old guy, says something about him. And Anna, the prophetess, says something about him. And what is the note on Mary and Joseph's response? Uh, They marveled at what was said about him. Marveled is like, you know, head snap back kind of stuff. And they learned very quickly there was no handbook on how to raise the Son of God. Now, good note on Mary, so I'm just not going to bag on Mary the whole time, is uh, Mary had a couple of really awesome habits. She liked to treasure things up in her heart. For those of you who are scrapbookers, what that means is Mary collected data points, right? That happened, that happened. The angel said this, this guy said that, she said that. And she has, I have no idea what they're talking about. But she stuffs it away in this box, and she treasures it, which means she guards it like a hope chest, right? And then later it says she ponders these things in her heart, What is pondering? Pondering is connecting all those dots, sometimes long after the fact, right? So it's a great model that we have from Mary. I think there's an expression of this is one of the next times you see her speaking in the scriptures is at the marriage feast in Cana. Uh, And I love this story. So she's down there. The feast is going on. They run out of wine, which at a party is a bad thing, apparently. And she comes up to Jesus and she takes him aside and she just says, They have no wine. And he says, he says, woman, why do you involve me? Right? Sounds a lot like what he said in the temple, frankly. Um, The woman in the Greek is not as derogatory as I made it sound right there. But he says, my time has not yet come. But what does she do? So she goes over the corner and she sulks because she's not getting her way. He's not, no. What she does is she goes and talks to the servants and she says, do whatever he says. I love that. Okay, you see, again, that naive expression. Here we are 18 years later after the temple incident, and I don't know how much Mary knew, but in those years, she had an expectation about who he was. Did she have an inkling that this would be his introductory miracle? I don't know, but she acted on her faith. She didn't know what he would do, but she knew what he was capable of. I just, I just love that about her. Okay, so then you get a clincher at the end. Mary puts it all together. Jesus learns obedience. Okay, Um, after all of that, you have to imagine. um, Now, this is a narrative that requires a lot of imagination, okay? Um, Just putting different points and ideas and things together. After the confrontation in the temple, there's nothing else recorded as being spoken between them. But you've got to imagine something from Mary along the lines of, Son, get your things, we're going. Okay? That journey home, first thing they had to do, it was already nightfall, they had to stay in Jerusalem one more night, and then they took off for the 90-mile journey, the first leg of which had to be tension redefined, in my opinion. But what does the scripture tell us? Jesus, after a declaration of independence in the temple, 
that returns to almost two decades of obedience to his parents. He learned obedience, having established his sovereignty, having established who his real father was. He returned with his adoptive father and mother and lived with them under their guidance, under their rules for another 18 years. That he could do both of those things at the same time makes him the most remarkable being ever. Later on, when he starts his public ministry, he's still hanging with his family. First few things, he goes to the wedding feast in Cana with his mother and his brothers and sisters. Then later he goes back to Capernaum. And the kind of sad thing about that is Joseph just has gone away. So it's theorized that between the temple and Jesus' public ministry, Joseph probably died, right? Uh, Making him a great, almost tragic figure in history, because everything he did... Jo- Joseph is like the silent Bob of the nativity story. Because, thank you. I just, yeah, I, I, admittedly an obscure reference, but anyway. So um, in all of the accounts, he never speaks a word. There's not one recorded word of Joseph. His thoughts get written down. But what is he like? The angel says, do this, and he does it. The angel says, go here, and he goes. He does everything he's told to. He never questions it. He is obedient to the point of pain. Right? There's a great tradition for that. He's just like Noah. Noah also, silent Bob, never says a word. But he does everything God tells him to do. All right. So, what are you going to pack up for the new year? Um, That was kind of a a rowdy ride through that story, I think. But I've got some takeaways for you. The first one is, know your true father. All right? Um, Jesus declared independence from his earthly father because he knew who his real father was. Again, he's coming of age. He's getting a sense of that divine presence, staying behind on purpose to be in that environment. I got to tell you, if you don't know today who your real father is, don't let another day pass. Or maybe two days because it's the end of the year right? But seriously, you have to get right with who your real father is. And I want to speak to you men for a moment, okay? I know this from listening to you and to myself, that there's a whole bunch of us who don't have the most sterling examples of fathers to provide guidance for us. Invite yourself to be fathered by God. Make this year the year that you go to that place. Number two, listen to Jesus. Okay? I picked on Mary and Joseph a little bit for not watching and listening and hearing to things. He, we sang the song earlier. Did we sing it, Scott? We're going to sing it later. We're going to sing it later. Um, If you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, he wants to speak to you. Right? So I'm going to encourage you to do this. Make space in your life to hear him. Maybe you take some time apart for a day. I've been experimenting with this. It's just going into a place and in silence and solitude and just creating a clearing in my head, right? Um, Wish I could build a wall around the clearing. So far, I've only managed a chain link fence because stuff still pokes through, right? But create that clearing and sit in silence And learn to listen and allow your spirit to commune with his, which is what the scriptures teach us he does. 
Listen to Jesus, and he will not lead you wrong. <sighs> Treasure and ponder. Collect the, debit, the evidence from your own life, right? If you trace the path, I am very fortunate in that I have walked with Jesus for nearly 40 years, right? Now my 40th anniversary would be next year. And I look at that trajectory, and even though it looks like this, a lot of the time, you can see, you can see there's a steady incline along that way. And stuff that happened in my 20s and 30s that I had no idea what, was, what it meant at the time, but I was traumatized by it. Now, in the glowing rearview mirror, I see God's hand in it. Right? So if you do that, connect the, collect the data, connect the dots, and give praise to God for where he's brought you. And in correlation with that, trust him even when you don't understand. Mary did, right? You see, I gave you evidence. She doesn't have it all figured out, but she's trusting him. You can see that at the marriage feast of Cana. We get to do the same thing. You know, I will point out to you that uh, I, I read the New Testament and like I, one out of three things that Jesus says, I have no idea what he's talking about, right? Um, and this is after a long time. I still have no idea what he's talking about. Um, explain to me, don't put an, a new piece of garment on an old piece of garment. I, I don't know, Right? Um, but you can trust him in the circumstances that are trying, confusing, despicable, shame-producing, because he is, after all, sovereign. And finally, um, let go of what's not yours. Mary and Joseph had to let go of Jesus, right? Right? He made the point indelibly clear that I know who you are. I know who my father is. You may have instances in your life in relationships, whether you're a parent with a child, that you have to let go and trust to the Holy Spirit and to Jesus to take him on or her on her path. Any of you who fall into the club of general managers of the universe, I include myself in that group, um, it is so hard. We want to protect people. We want to save them. We, we want to do all of that, right? It's really, frankly, better to just see what God will do with them. Because you might Pollyanna it up to the extent that he is unable to accomplish his purpose. There are times when we just get to let go. Jesus will triangulate every relationship, right? I love you, but I love him more. Trust other people to his care. Let's pray. Father in heaven, it's almost a new year, which means this one's really worn out and ready to be put away. Um, and we thank you and ask you that as we go forward, we would be open to your word, open to listen to you. Jesus, you are speaking to us. You have spoken this morning. And I pray that you would continue to speak. Guide us to the point of being unfettered and undecorated in your presence, just naked in who we are uh, before you and expect the work that you will do. Work in us now, work in us today, work in us next year, work in us forever for your glory. Amen.